Oh, Bruce, thank you very much for a welcome like that. Um, it's, I, I'm embarrassed that it's taken so long to actually get here. Um, what Bruce said is actually very true. From the moment I came here, I really wanted to be the creative pastor for um, all of our congregations. Um, unfortunately, the music side of things and the, the larger congregations were kind of the place, uh, the direction in which I was um, pointed. And um, there was something a little bit sadder in me that I um, hadn't been able to get here, but I'm thrilled, absolutely thrilled, to be here this morning. Across Mosaic, we last week began um, a, a series that will take us up to Easter. Um, in many traditions around the world, um, starting, well, Wednesday this coming week, um, Lent is this period set aside for preparing to hear again the story of Easter. And it's a very sacred time in many traditions, Christian traditions around our world. And so we asked ourselves as a pastoral team, what would, what would we like to do to lead us up to Easter to hear this very familiar story once again and hopefully prepare us um, to hear that uh, a story of Jesus' death, suffering, death and resurrection once again. And um, at the same time, we had uh, we had a number of people approach us from the congregations who said um, they were concerned about prayer um, at Mosaic, and you know how were we expressing this in a corporate kind of way? And so, and the pastors all agreed with that. And we asked ourselves, what would it look like to combine these two things? What would it look like for us to combine um, a call to prayer, to mosaic, and, of course, um, this preparation um, to hear the Easter story once again? And we've come up with... We came up with this series that we started last week, which we've called uh, The Prayers Jesus Prayed. Now... Um, we can go through the Gospels and uh, towards, as we get closer to Easter, we will we will do this much more. You can go through the Gospels and there are a number of Psalms that end up on the lips of Jesus or um, are used by the Gospel writers to um, communicate what's happening, to give words to, um, to this Gospel message. And they use these ancient songs and hymns and prayers, this remarkable, remarkable collection we call the Psalms. But Jesus, being a good Jewish boy, um, or, or even just a good Jew, uh, would have known these prayers. Over the years, I've been a youth minister in many different contexts, and of course, um, some people have come and said, I don't know how to pray. Um, this probably wouldn't have been a, a question in the Jewish world. Uh, these psalms, these poems, were taught to people um, every time they went to the synagogue. They would be recited over and over again. All the adults around a child 
would by then have known these psalms by heart, and it would have been very natural for them to um, know that it was possible to know these psalms so well that they could bubble up within you at any point. Now, this is really important because as good Baptists, we don't tend to have a prayer book or to um, to recite prayers together. Uh, but in the Jewish world, uh, they did this not on the understanding that this would uh, restrict what your prayer life could be, but on the understanding that it could set your prayer life free. Now, um, let me give you an analogy on this one. Um, a lot of uh, very, very good musicians begin their training or their learning on their instrument um, by learning to read sheet music. And they will, um, they will look at the music and it will tell them where to put their fingers. If you're learning a keyboard, they will, it will tell them where their fingers go and at what point in the music this happens. They learn by rote. But the intention and the goal is that they will eventually know music so well that they will be able to improvise. So rote doesn't become a way of arriving. It becomes a journey that takes you far beyond. And I want to suggest to you that um, for the Jews, and indeed for, for in many Christian traditions, the Psalms have become this way of learning to pray that sets us free in a relationship with God, to say almost anything, to bring every aspect of our humanity to God. Of all the things I would like you to take away today, um, that is it. That the Psalms are an invitation for you to bring your greatest joys your deepest ambitions, to express your deepest love for God, to express your wonder at the extraordinary nature of creation that surrounds you, for you to express your profound disappointment in God, for you to bring before God your deepest hatred of your enemies, A way for you to learn to sing your greatest and deepest praises of God as a community and as an individual. This collection has all the potential to allow you to always be you before God. And it hasn't happened by accident. 
This is this is Israel's songbook. This is a, a deliberate collection that was pulled together and edited and treasured and passed on from generation to generation because it could set you free before God. So often our understanding of holiness, the holiness and otherness of God, gets translated into the idea that we can only bring those good parts of us before God. We can only bring those parts God will approve of before God. The Psalms blow that out of the water. They absolutely explode that idea. David brings his sins before God. We know Psalm 51, this psalm of repentance. As I alluded to before, there's a psalm that talks about the hatred of wanting to dash the children of our enemies against the rocks. It's it's brutal. In fact, it's so brutal that your average lectionary or collection of public readings um, across the world will actually edit it out because we find it so difficult to know what to do with something like that. Yet we also know it's a radically human emotion. And what happens if we're not permitted to bring that before God? What do we do with it? We either act it out or it embeds itself somewhere into our psyche or our body. And we become that emotion. Let me just add that I think there's some wisdom in not just reading that out and leaving it there. Um, I think that kind of hatred expressed before God actually needs comment because we are the followers of Jesus, the one who called us to love our enemies. Let me suggest to you that the only way you will ever love your enemies is when you hate them, you bring that reality to God. And you embrace that permission that the Psalms actually give us. In Acts um, chapter 13, there's a, a reference which, which um, affects our comment today on Psalm number 1. Um, It it refers to, in the translation I've got here, it says, so I'm in Acts chapter 13, uh, and I'm at verse 33. And just halfway through that verse, it says, this is what the second psalm says about Jesus. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Now, the earliest translations we have um, of Acts Uh, don't refer to this as the second psalm. They refer to it as the first psalm. Now, this is not because Psalm 1 was missing. Uh, This is because Psalm 1 
was considered to be a preamble or an introduction to the Psalms. We tend to classify it as wisdom literature. So here is, um, here is uh, one of the Psalms that invites us to live wisely and well. But it is very deliberately at the beginning of this collection. The reason this translation calls it Psalm 2 is because it's going off our number, uh, our numbers. So it's, it's actually helping you kind of find out where this, where this, these words originated. Um, so there's something wise about that. But what it does for Psalm 1 is it makes us think this is just another one of the Psalms. But it's not. It's an introduction. It's a big picture overview of what this collection is supposed to do. And yes, there are things that are, are, are clear in here um, as to what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to um, encourage you to hang around Yahweh rather than those who this, in a very black and white way, kind of describes as the wicked. It's supposed to, the Psalms, the collection of Psalms, is supposed to nurture you so that you would be something like a tree planted by streams of water, rather than become like chaff, and you'll know you will you'll all know about what the sifting of the chaff was like, won't you? Big baskets full of the wheat, the freshly sown wheat, you throw it up in the air, and all the heavy wheat would fall down into the basket again, and the chaff would just blow away. This incredible contrast of metaphors, really, isn't it? One is this tree that is established and watered and firm and here forever. The other, this very temporary image of what is simply blown away and unnecessary. I think there is a, a simplicity here, and I think it's important to note, because as you go from here through the Psalms, even King David is not perfectly righteous before God. And the Psalms give permission for that to be acknowledged. We're not all righteous or all bad. As we go through life, we find ourselves perhaps belonging on or fitting into both of these categories at different times. So Psalm 1 can be read in a very simplistic way. But the whole of the Psalms will invite you into a tremendously, tremendously complex and detailed understanding of prayer that can bring everything to this God. If you get a chance, um, at the end of 
our, our communion table there is I've just opened up a, a book. It's it's a, a book of Indigenous paintings, and this one um, is actually a very very complex painting. It's by um, an Aboriginal elder from one of the tribes in Western Australia, and the detail um, in this painting actually reflects um, the detail of the Psalms I want to, want to suggest to you. It's a tree, so it's based on Psalm 1, or it's being related to Psalm 1 there in the book. And um, it's a picture of not only the tree, but the roots that reach so deep down into the ground. And this elder is seeing this tree as, as himself. Um, he is uh, growing in all of these, all of these different ways, in all of um, all of his understanding of God, all of his the the people around him. Um, all these things are influencing and making him um, into this strong, bold, colourful, productive tree, as our psalm would say. I hope you don't get stuck on the black and white nature of this particular psalm because it is inviting you into a world where all the detail of our, our lives as humans is expressed and brought before God. But, you know, this is there is a path that is opened up by the core of Psalm 1 that is well worth noting. It's the path that leads to you being like the tree planted by, um, planted by water. And it is this in verse 2. They delight in the law of the Lord meditating on it day and night. All the metaphors in this psalm sit around this statement. This is the invitation of this psalm and every other. It is for you not only to um, picture yourself as a tree that is watered, but to be watered here. To be watered as you meditate on, or as a cow chews over its cud. That's kind of the imagery here. As you ruminate on the words of God. And that is a strong, distinct characteristic of the Psalms. And it is why so many traditions around the world have centralised the Psalms in their worship of God. We do too. Many of our songs are inspired from here. Because the Psalms, quite distinctly, though not exclusively, are not telling you about God, 
They are not primarily aiming to give you facts about God. They are aiming to invite you to respond to God. Now, it's not that the facts and stories are unimportant. You know that. The Jewish world treasured the Torah and all this collection of the stories of their ancestors and they told them over and over again in the belief that it would teach us what it looked like to follow after God. They treasured those stories. But the Psalms invite us to respond to them. And in this sense, they are very very deeply human. This is asking, this collection is asking you for a deeper understanding than knowing about God. It is inviting you into a heart relationship with God and insisting that it can be learnt. So if you find this heart stuff just a little threatening or difficult, can I invite you to start here? Last week I said to my congregation, um, as we introduced the Psalms, I said, uh, if you start this week, we've got about 50 days um, till you'll hit Easter. What if you took on three Psalms each day? You'd get to the end by the time we hit Easter. Now we're seven days off that now, so you'll have to maybe read four. But can I encourage you to um, consider how you will make these psalms, this collection, yours. That's one way, of course. I once read of a a monk in training um, somewhere in the UK, um, not recently, many, many centuries ago, who um, stood in the icy waters of the ocean around the UK and for an entire day stood there in the cold reciting all of the Psalms. Now, I'm not recommending this. Um, Please get that clear. But I wonder how deeply you would have to know the Psalms to be freezing cold and be able to recite them from cover to cover. At the very least, can that uh, invite you into how deep the Psalms can take you? How far we can take this collection of songs? How deeply they can impact us? You would have to have learnt to love the Psalms to do that. Now, just to be clear, they weren't just crazy. 
These were people who, in a time when even to take a collection of the written Psalms um, into the mission field, as many of these um, wonderful monastic people did, um, you, you couldn't do it. It was unrealistic. So they had to implant these words in their heart so that they would be with them always. And so many of them testify to these words and these prayers bubbling up within them at exactly the right time. Can I suggest to you that that is exactly what happens on the cross when Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A direct quote from Psalm 22. Jesus has lived these psalms to the point that even in the agony of the cross, they give him words to turn to God in prayer. I've got another quote here at the end of this table. Um, if you get to, if you get a chance, have a look at this one as well. I thought I could read it from here, but I may be guessing a little bit. This is from Eugene Peterson, who um, is one of our modern translators of the Bible who passed away not too long ago. Um, a great hero of mine. And here he says, prayer and poetry are the closest of kin. In poetry, we say it. In poetry, we say it. In prayer, we become what we say. I'm really tempted just to leave that quote there for you and for your community as you head up to Easter. I can make another one for my shack. <laughs> um, what I see in these words is an invitation not just to see the Psalms as poetry or words, but to allow these words to take us deeper into the mystery of faith. Because that's the goal here. It's not for you to go away and by Easter learn all the Psalms and come and show me. <laughs> I don't care. This is not surface knowledge. This is a wonderful, wonderful invitation for you to learn what it is to bring your heart before God. It's actually a collection that trains you to meditate on the words of Yahweh and to allow your heart to delight in them.
And I think that's ultimately why I entirely uh, approve of our playing of that song by Annie Grant. Um, this is doing exactly what the Psalms are supposed to do. She's singing them. And they say the one who sings prays twice. I agree. I think singing is a deeply, deeply human expression. And to pull these two together, the invitation to be people who sing our songs and pray our prayers from the depths of our being is exactly what the Psalms invite us to do. Let me pray. Jesus, open our eyes to the treasure of this collection. Between now and Easter, may you um, show each of us what to do with this gathering of prayers and poems and songs. That we might be people who worship you from the depth of our heart and are never simply connect, uh, content with just knowing about you. May we learn to be a people of response. Amen.